The other thing that we look for is that founders need to have a strong point of view, but be very hypothesis oriented and be willing to change their mind based on the data that they collect. So we really want founders who are voracious learners. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. My guest today is Satya Patel. He's the founder and partner at Homebrew. Homebrew is a Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm. He invests in mission-driven founders who embrace big ideas, big impact, and big risk. We're going to talk about that in more detail. Satya, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Thanks, Gopi. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell me about yourself, starting with how did you enter the venture capital world? Like a lot of people, becoming a VC was a happy accident. It wasn't something that I had planned. I started my career in consulting and had the good fortune of working with primarily small cap technology companies and even lived in Israel for a while working with some of the early internet companies there, ISPs and voice over internet protocol companies. And that gave me exposure to relatively early tech companies and got me interested in working in a closer way with those companies, not having a operating background, the next best thing was to try to get into venture. At this time in the mid-90s, the way to do that was to fire a lot of actual physical letters off to venture firms to see if they'd be willing to hire me. Somehow, after sending probably north of 200 letters that yielded a job offer, and I joined a venture capital firm called Geo Capital Partners in New York City. That was the start of my career in VC. Subsequently, worked at another venture capital firm, then moved to the operating side for a period of time. That led to moving to the West Coast in 2003 to work at Google. After Google, ended up again in VC at a firm called Battery Ventures, then joined some of my Google colleagues who were getting Twitter off the ground to run product there. And then finally, about eight and a half years ago, joined with one of my former Google colleagues and close friends, Hunter Walk, to start Homebrew. A journey back and forth between the operating side and the investing side, always focused on the people I was going to be working with and the problem that I was going to be solving. And I'm a big believer that if you optimize for those two things, everything else tends to work itself out. I can't say any master plan, but here we are with Homebrew eight and a half years in and very happy to be doing the work that we're doing. Now, you spent many years in product management, and you were one of the early leaders on product at Twitter. How does that experience in product management help you as a venture capital investor? Yeah, I think the reality is that most operating experience is dated two or three years after you've left the operating role. The thing that I take away from the operating side is, first and foremost, an empathy for what it takes to build products and companies at scale. That serves us and the founders that we work with well. The second thing is the ability to identify talent, which is maybe the most important thing that early stage companies do is building the teams and the organizations, not just hiring talent, but putting in place the right structures for them from a compensation performance management standpoint and instituting the right culture and values early on and being intentional about that. And the last thing it's given me is perspectives on what makes businesses work, both from a business perspective, but also from a people perspective. So I'd say the operating experience itself 
tactically around product is semi-useful, but some of the lessons learned about company and organization building are really the things that are most useful to us and hopefully most helpful to the founders we work with. You found your way into venture capital writing letters and eventually switched back and forth a few times. And eight years ago, you started Homebrew. How is Homebrew different from other venture capital firms? What's your philosophy and what is unique about Homebrew? Yeah, we started Homebrew with a very simple idea based on a gap we saw in the market, which was there were plenty of places to get capital, even more now, obviously, than eight and a half years ago. But we still think it's true that there aren't very many investors at the seed stage who are willing to not just commit capital, but also sweat in reputation and be the investor of record or the accountable party in some way. We try to do that for a small number of companies each year. We really are the hands-on investor that comes from an operating background that is going to work side by side with the founders to help them build the companies that they envision. And we believe that we can only do that and spend the majority of our time with those founders, if we're doing a small enough number of investments that we aren't spending all of our time with a ton of companies or looking for the next set of investments. We take a very concentrated approach to investing, uh, only investing in eight or so companies a year. We commit significant dollars and by leading or co-leading those seed rounds, we take a board seat and then we roll up our sleeves and get to work. We still think that that's a differentiated approach at the seed stage. And we're excited by the work that we've done over the last eight and a half years, the founders who have chosen to work with us and the companies that they've built, our hope is we'll be able to do this for a really long time. What kind of companies do you invest in? What are some areas that get you excited? You can give lots of examples of your portfolio companies, give them a plug. It's always great. Yeah, the areas we invest in are really determined by the founders, first and foremost. We're led into areas of innovation by incredibly smart people who have lived a problem that they're tackling and really are on a mission to change the way the world operates based on the insight that they have having dealt with that problem firsthand. A few recent examples that are in the news for various reasons. One is a company called Plaid, which is democratizing access to bank data in order to enable innovation more broadly in the financial services ecosystem. They had tried to build a financial services app themselves understood that getting access to financial data was fraught with all kinds of problems and wanted to solve that and turned their initial consumer-facing idea into an API-driven platform that is now effectively the standard on which all financial services innovation is happening. That's a perfect example of a mission-driven founding team that didn't have much traction at all, but had a big idea for how they could change an industry And we got involved with them because of that mission that they were on, their unique insight into the problem that they were addressing, and the pain that the market was feeling around the problem that they were addressing. When we're investing, we're really trying to identify mission-driven founders tackling markets where the pain is large, acute, and valuable, and who have a unique product vision based on the personal pain that they've experienced. Another great example is a company called Bowery Farming, where Irving, the CEO there, having left his prior startup, was thinking about sustainability and the world of agriculture and saw an opportunity to change both economics and the quality of food being delivered to your local grocery store and to your local restaurant and created what is now the world's largest indoor farm company. 
And again, we invested pre-anything when it was Irving, a PowerPoint, and a spreadsheet. And since then, they've gone on to build a number of farms to just announce $300 million in financing and are really changing the way that agriculture is going to happen here in the US and potentially around the world. Again, big ideas, big risk, founders who are on a mission and companies where we're very proud to be involved because they're not just going to be valuable business, but businesses that have merit. I see what you mean by big ideas, big impact, and big risk. What do you see in the first few meetings when you meet an entrepreneur? I understand you invest in pre-seed and seed stage, and you prefer to lead or co-lead those rounds. What are some qualities that really get your attention? Yeah, it's a great question because, again, we're investing usually pre-product, so it really is about the founders and the team. We're looking for a few things. One is that unique insight into how the world should operate relative to what they've experienced firsthand. These founders have a very narrow near-term focus in terms of where they're going to start, but a broad long-term vision and some idea of the path to getting there. It's true that most companies don't end up where they start. The other thing that we look for is that founders need to have a strong point of view, but be very hypothesis-oriented and be willing to change their mind based on the data that they collect. We really want founders who are voracious learners. The third thing is that the founders that we are most excited about are incredible communicators of the vision. We find that that's valuable in recruiting talent, in selling investors, in signing customers and partners. If they can carry the flag and draw people to them, that's an incredibly powerful skill and resource for those founders to have. And the last thing is they want to need and want a hands-on investor. As much as we choose founders, founders have to choose us as well. There is a little self-selection or self-bias in founders choosing to work with us, given our hands-on approach, and, and founders need to want that if they're going to work with us. Those are some of the things that we look for. But ultimately, we're investing in founders first before anything else. We spend a lot of time on understanding the motivation and the skills that founders have. Yeah. In my early days in venture capital, I was more like a buy-side analyst. I was evaluating to see if this is an investment I want to propose. But over the years, I've switched to like, can I be useful to these founders? Can I add value? I start with that and we figure out the other things later. I'm really curious how you look for those qualities. Uh, some of the qualities you mentioned, can they hire people? Can they be leaders? And can they describe their vision? What questions do you ask them so you can get a feel for answers? Yeah. The first thing we do is that we spend a lot of time understanding the why. If they can tell us a compelling story for why they want to build this company over the next decade and dedicate that time and energy to it, that's an incredible starting point for understanding the motivations and the skills of a founder. The second thing is understanding what has prepared them to be uniquely suited to solve this problem. That's looking at their past and whether it's work-related or in their personal lives or side projects or volunteer work, what are the things that they've done that are demonstrative of some of the skills that we're looking for? That voracious need to learn, that hypothesis testing, that ability to sell the vision. The, the third thing is we try to treat diligence almost like a collaborative working session. As part of our process, what we typically do is ask the founders beyond the initial pitch to select a topic or two that they're really grappling with. We sit down with them and work with them on addressing that problem or developing at least a framework for thinking about that problem. And that gives us a lot of insight into 
how they think, how they make decisions, how well they know the problems at hand, all those kinds of things. There's nothing more important to us than having the time to build those relationships with those founders and to understand their thinking at a deep level, because we think then if we're to get involved, we're going to be better partners to them. For better or worse, we tend to be pretty deliberate in our decision-making and are not probably the fastest when it comes to making an investment decision. Speed is important, but quality is definitely more important. When you look for these details, are you looking for past history of them having done something like that, where they have recruited people, led, led teams? Are you looking more for their articulation about the future? This is how I would do it, and here's my vision, and here's how the world can be better if my ideas came true. Where do you give more weight? I think it's articulation of the vision and articulation of the path to getting there that's the most important because many times we're investing in first-time founders, and oftentimes they're first-time founders who don't have a ton of prior experience. There are things that, again, we're looking for based on their history to suggest that they might have the skills and motivations that we're looking for. But the best representation of that or the best data around that is, are they able to articulate their vision? And are they able to articulate the path of execution? Again, recognizing that in most cases, startups are nothing but a series of mistakes. And where they end up is not necessarily where they start. We really want to understand the founder's vision and their understanding of the problem so that they have a well-articulated path for how to address that problem. Can you give an example of one such investment? How did you meet the entrepreneur? What was the initial discussion like? What did they tell you? And when did you get excited? Like, yeah, I want to make this investment. Sure. We were early investors in a company called Chime. And the founders, Chris Britt and Ryan King, were talking about building a mobile bank, which had been done and had been done unsuccessfully by a number of companies, including most notably Simple. A lot of investors looked at that and said, well, we're not going to invest in that because that business doesn't work. But the thing that Chris and Ryan understood, the unique things that they understood and that they were able to articulate really won the day for us. Chris, having spent time at Visa and Green Dot, understood that the pain that was in the market was actually felt not most acutely by urban millennials who the prior mobile banks had gone after, but by middle Americans who didn't have even $400 of monthly savings that were being screwed by traditional banks with transaction fees, monthly fees, ATM fees, overdraft fees. He was able to articulate why there was a specific audience that they wanted to go after that had been ignored, but experienced the most pain. The second thing is he was able to articulate something about the business model that a lot of people either didn't buy into or didn't appreciate, which was by virtue of interchange and by virtue of being the primary bank account for these consumers, you could actually build a really powerful business from a revenue and margin standpoint. Up until Chime proved it, most people didn't believe that you could build a sustainable business based solely on interchange. Those are examples of their understanding of the problem and the unique insights that they had. And then they articulated a path for how to execute against those insights. That's a perfect example of a big idea, a big risk, but a big impact that we got excited to get behind. And, and of course, Chime today is the largest neobank in the country and most recently raised capital at $14.5 billion. Our hope is we'll be a top five bank in the US here in the next few years. An incredible story indeed. Chime started when mobile banking was not that popular and they built a whole infrastructure around it. 
what did you see that entrepreneurs do well as these kind of companies grow what are some foundational things that they do right in the beginning and which you noticed at uh, chime or other companies as well that really set them up for huge success in the future sure first and foremost is that they focus chime was very focused on a specific type of customer and how to address their needs in a very specific and unique way. We really like companies that have that focus, one user, one use case, and one solution in the early days. And Chime was able to focus in that way to really keep learning to make sure that they were getting to a product that could achieve product market fit. The second thing that Chime did from the beginning was really focus on hiring with the utmost quality and with its culture and values in mind. They're very intentional from day one around the type of organization that they wanted to build. And I give Chris and Ryan tons of credit for not just the skills of the individuals, but the diversity of the team, the mission-driven nature of all of the early people. And as a result, Chime has had very little employee turnover from the earliest days and is often on the list of the best places to work. So that people focus early on is something common across all the companies that we see successful. The last thing is just the wherewithal to withstand the ups and downs building a company. Chris has spoken about the fact that Chime had a couple of near-death moments, and it's Brian's leadership, the rest of the team's leadership, that enabled the company to withstand those times and emerge from them stronger. The Probably the most recent example of that is when there was an outage at its processing partner, Galileo, which impacted a huge percentage of the customers. And the way they handled that with customers, the way they handled that with investors, spoke to the type of organization that they've built and the resilience of the team. This was a couple of years back and is emblematic of what makes the best company successful. Those are some pieces. This is incredibly helpful. You're giving insights on real life examples, how a company lays the foundation Pretty much every startup goes through ups and downs, and there are near-death experiences that happen very often. But if the foundation is right, and if the leadership can manage the culture of the company, then they can sometimes even turn those challenges into opportunities. That's a really good example that you share right now. The early stages are very important. I've read about some of your articles where you talk about seed investment, that it's not one moment. It's not like no Series A, Series B. It's a seed phase. What do you mean by that? Yeah, we really think of early stage investing for us being about the seed phase. And the reason we talk about it that way is because a lot of people have tried to cut up that period into pre-seed and seed and post-seed. From our standpoint, that's a fundraising mindset, but not a company building mindset. For us, that seed phase is all about establishing product market fit. And there's three key components of company building during that phase. One is building the product, two is distributing the product, and three is building the team that's going to build and distribute the product. We think of ourselves as seed phase investors because it's irrelevant to us whether we're getting involved at the pre-seed, the seed, or the post-seed because the problems that the company faces are basically the same. And that's where we want to try to be helpful. And those stages are really fundraising stages as opposed to company building stages. And we really think of ourselves as being focused on phase of company building, which is the product that we're trying to offer to the market and and deliver to the market. So you see 
probably hundreds of companies. And in the end, at the end of the year, you make six to eight investments. I'm curious, beyond the six to eight investments, when companies get really close to the finish line, but you decide not to, what are some reasons that make you walk away? There's so many things that go into making an investment. At the seed stage, we've talked about the decision as much one about emotion as it is about anything else because there is no data to react to. Hunter and I make decisions by consensus. There's only two of us and we don't think of a deal anything other than a homebrew deal. It's not a Hunter deal or a Sethi deal or anything like that. And we both work with every company. When we make an investment, we both have to be equally enthusiastic and feel to your earlier point that we can actually be helpful to the company. Oftentimes we may dig in and and feel like we don't have as much enthusiasm about supporting these founders or excitement about the market opportunity as they do. And that would be unfair to them if we were to be the investors that they work with. Other times, what's common is we meet an incredible technical founding team, but they don't have any thinking around how to distribute their product and go to market, which we think is one of the pillars of company building. That's a common reason where we get close and realize the thinking there isn't deep enough or the hypotheses aren't strong enough for us to support them. We turn down investments because we believe that there's a market opportunity, but the pain isn't acute enough to create urgency in the minds of potential customers. Those are some examples. There are lots of reasons to turn down a company. Unfortunately, many more than there are to say yes. One of the things we think about all the time is looking back and reflecting on the companies we passed on and did we make good decisions there or bad? And We try to do that on a periodic basis and continually question our decision-making. Yeah, the pain, how acute it is, it's really hard to tell. You cannot just call the customer and say, how hard is your pain? You can't get that answer. You have to do some investigation. Having a prepared mindset helps, but it's really hard to form conviction around it. Uh, You could be right, you could be wrong, and it can go either way. Yeah, especially because we're also trying to think about not is just the pain acute, but is it valuable? It's one thing for it to be acute, but if no one's willing to pay to have it addressed, (laughs) then that's a problem too. We're trying to evaluate both of those things. And it can be really challenging work to try to figure that out. But ultimately, if the founders can convince us based on their experiences, that goes a long way. So here's a difficult question. If Hunter shoots a deal down because he doesn't like it, but you like it, or if you shoot a deal down and it eventually turns out to be not true, some of the assumptions that you start with, how do you reconcile between the two of you? Don't you regret that your partner stopped the deal that could have been great? First and foremost, it starts with the foundation of the partnership. Hunter and I chose to work together because we know that between the two of us, there is 110% trust. And that's the foundation of everything that we do. Number two is that we recognize that both of us are going to make mistakes. And the beauty of being a seed stage firm that has a relatively small fund is that we don't have to be in every great company. We just need to be in our fair share in order to generate outsized returns. We always try to keep that in mind. Three is that we always have a learning mindset, a growth mindset, for lack of a better description. That's why we're doing this analysis to figure out when have we made mistakes. And sometimes it's one of us meets with a company, doesn't even bring it to the other person and passes, and it turns out to have been a good company. Other times it's where we both meet a company and mutually agree that we shouldn't make the investment. Of course, there are mistakes of commission where we made an investment that we shouldn't have, and we evaluate that too. There are situations in which we disagree and we can't resolve that disagreement to get to a point of consensus. That certainly could happen, but we don't look at those as mistakes on the part of one person or the other. We looked at look at that as joint learning opportunities to continue to get better at what we do. 
Staying on the topic of passing on investments, you talk about seed phase, as in it's not a one deal at a seed round or pre-seed round. It's more about the fundraising thing that brings this nomenclature, but you make multiple investments during that phase. Can you give an example of a company where you decided not to make an investment, a follow-on investment in the company at the seed phase? One of the things we try to establish with every founding team is trust and transparency in the same way that we have that amongst the two of us. Part of that is our operating model where we're, we have regular time with every founding team on a weekly or biweekly basis. And that frequency and that level of conversation at the tactical level provides a foundation for that trust and transparency. Part of that transparency is alignment around what are we trying to achieve in order to earn the right to go raise the next round of capital. In situations where we haven't gone forward to either raise more capital or we haven't supported a financing that may happen, we'd like to think that there's never a surprise for the founders because we have had agreement or at least understanding of what it is that we believed we were trying to achieve. And we're able to say very concretely that either those objectives were met or not. And that's the reason for our participation or a lack of participation. There are certainly instances where a company has raised additional capital and we haven't participated, but I don't think that those have been, one, harmful to the company because we would never put a financing at risk. But more importantly, two, that hasn't been a surprise to the founders because we've had that conversation and alignment around what we were looking for and what they were trying to achieve in order for us to want to continue to participate. Yeah, that's one of the advantages of focusing on the seed stage. You can explain to the entrepreneur why you may not invest in the next round. And that conversation probably has happened over a period of time, not at one moment when they are getting ready for Series A or Series B. And this is a problem for some of the large funds that invest in seed round, because it's always a surprise when a large fund doesn't show up at the subsequent round. And the entrepreneurs never have a conversation. They assume that you will because you have deep pockets. Why wouldn't you show up at the Series A round? And that brings a lot of problems. That's exactly right. This is one of the reasons we think of the homebrew product being best suited for the seed stage or the seed phase. There are lots of opportunities in more places than ever to get capital for your company at the seed phase, but we think our product is stage appropriate or phase appropriate based on some of these things that we've talked about. You've already revolutionized a few things, including what seed phase means. A lot more needs to change in venture capital. What would you do to change venture capital? If you were to change one thing, what would it be? I would add more diverse check writers. There's no question that diverse check writers are more likely to fund diverse founders who are more likely to hire diverse employees. If those companies are successful, that creates a virtuous cycle of wealth and expertise that funnels back into the ecosystem. And it's certainly what has benefited the tech and VC industries for the last 40, 50 years. But there are large portions of the population, underrepresented groups who have not been able to participate in that virtuous cycle. And for me, the, the biggest impact that could be had is by having more underrepresented check writers in the industry. Yeah, we certainly need more diversity, not just because diversity is a nice thing to have, but we're missing out on a lot of opportunities where problems can be solved and we can build businesses. And we aren't looking at those topics because we don't have diversity in our view. I yeah. hope this podcast brings more diversity through the effort of you, know, you sharing knowledge on how investments are made. Yeah, I hope so too. We, we and a lot of other investors are led into areas of innovation by founders. If we're not talking to a diverse set of founders, we're not getting exposed to 
all the potentially powerful ideas out there. It's our responsibility to continue to do better and hopefully the broader industry to continue to keep underrepresentation top of mind and force the issue a little bit. I want to switch to the last part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about and which one? Yeah, I'm a big believer in education being the path to opening doors. I've been involved for a long time with an organization called KIPP. KIPP is a network of public charter schools in very underprivileged neighborhoods, providing quality education to students who otherwise would have their destiny determined by their zip code. And I am really enthusiastic about KIPP because it provides these kids with a foundation that allows them to have more options in their lives than they might otherwise. I've been on the board for a very long time. Satya, thank you very much for spending the hour with me and talking about many of your investment philosophies and giving examples of startups that you've invested in. And thanks a lot for sharing your insights and stories. I look forward to publishing this episode and sharing your stories with the world. Thanks again for having me. It's great to be a part of this, given all the great guests you've had, and I hope it's useful for folks listening. Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.